listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. Welcome to the Integra X-Files, a place where we'll explore and solve for the X-Factor that will help reshape the future of long-term care pharmacy. Join us to discuss topics and insights that will help you discover ways to grow your pharmacy, stay up to date on important legislative and regulatory issues, learn best practices for operating a profitable pharmacy business, and unlock the mysteries of technology. Join hosts Francis Nahas, Chief Strategy Officer for Red Sail Technologies, and Jim McDonald, Vice President of Sales at Integra, as they connect with experts and leaders in the field to bring you content that matters in long-term care. Welcome, everybody, to the Integra X-Files podcast. We're really excited to be with you again today. Uh, my name is Francis Nahas. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer for Red Sail Technologies, and I'm here with my co-host, Jim McDonald. Jim, why don't you introduce yourself and introduce our esteemed guest today? Again, Jim McDonald, uh, the Vice President of Sales at Integra and uh, QS1, Red Sale. Uh, Alan Rosenblum is our guest today. He's the President and CEO of the Senior Care Farms Coalition. Rather than me try to regurgitate all the information about this gentleman, I think I'll let him speak uh, and give us his background. Well, thanks, Jim. And uh, thanks to both of you. I appreciate the opportunity to join you for today's conversation. Um, as Jim mentioned, I'm the president and CEO of the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition, which is a group that represents about 350 long-term care pharmacies across the country. Uh, and we focus exclusively on federal public policy and the politics around that. And our objective is to influence public policy in ways that improve market opportunities for long-term care pharmacies, put simply. Briefly, my background is that before SEPC, I uh, led several long-term care facility-based organizations, including the Alliance for Quality Nursing Home Care, which represented many of the largest nursing home countries, uh, companies in the country in Washington. The Pennsylvania Healthcare Association, which is the state affiliate in Pennsylvania of the American Healthcare Association. And although it wasn't named Leading Age at the time, I also held a senior uh, leadership position at Leading Age for several years. For that, I practiced healthcare law and did a lot of work with long-term care facilities. Mm, well, interesting. Awesome. A lot of history. Yeah. So you recently spoke at the Integra Conference, and I thought you did a fantastic job of explaining why public policy should matter, why our long-term care pharmacies should care about public policy. I would love for you to give kind of a summary of why is this important to them? Sure. Um, well, it's important to long-term care pharmacies because public policy shapes what they do. It shapes the services they provide, it shapes what they get paid for providing those services, and it shapes where they can provide those services. Yeah, so I, one of my takeaways was a sort of, I wrote this down laugh, I was like, follow the money. Follow <laughs> <laughs> the money, that's, right? That's the story, if, I do believe. Yeah. If, if you look at sort of um, Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement, right, that, that drives almost disproportionately um, where and how long-term care pharmacies can play. Is that a fair statement or am I overgeneralizing? No, historically, that's very much true, especially in Medicare. You know, uh, 
when you look at the long-term care pharmacy sector, about um, 75% of long-term care pharmacy revenues come from the Part D is in dog program. Another 20% come from Medicare Part A or Medicare Part C for you know patients who are in nursing facilities who are at time of service uh, on the SNF, the skilled nursing facility, Medicare Part Medicare benefit. Uh, and then only 5% is everything else, Medicaid, private insurance, individual out-of-pocket, and so on. Um, although I will note that depending on what markets an individual long-term care pharmacy may be focused on, that mix is different. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about that, because that, that is an interesting dynamic. I think some of our customers actually have a pretty wide, or I should say we have a wide variety amongst our customers and the type of long-term care facility that they support. So how does it differ by long-term care facility? Oh, well, um, basically, if you are serving nursing facilities, well, let's, let me approach it in a different way. In the nursing facility context, okay, there are basically two payers, Medicare Part A or C and Medicare Part D. So you have the, the, the residents who are uh, on a part, on a SNF stay, which could be Part A or maybe Part C. Uh, and in that case, the dollar flow is Medicare pays the facility if it's Part A for uh, in, a, in a kind of combined payment that includes pharmacy services. The facility contracts with an, a long-term care pharmacy pursuant to which the pharmacy gets paid for providing drugs and services to people in Part A stays or Part C stays. That's, you know, so that's kind of in, in, in a, in a long-term care facility, that's about 20% of revenues. Everything else is pretty much Part D. Yeah. because most residents in long-term care facilities uh, are duly eligible for both Medicare. So if they're not in a Part A stay, they are, uh, their care, long-term care is being paid for by Medicaid, but their drugs are being paid for by Part D, okay. right? And for the, for the subset of the kind of Medicare AC population that is, you know, that has private resources to pay for care, they're just going to be in for the Part A stay or the Part C stay, and they're going someplace else. They may go to assisted living, they may go back home. Typically on that Part A stay, the pharmacy is billing the facility for those drug right. costs. Correct. Okay. Absolutely. And trying to collect from that right. resource. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, in facility, long-term care facilities, by which I mean nursing homes and, and skilled nursing facilities, um, the... Uh, you know, there may be a little, like if, if they're on the Part A or Part C stay, there's no copay. And if those folks go home because they're not duals and they can afford to not be yeah. in a facility, um, then, you know, there's no copay to collect because the long-term care pharmacies are providing the care. For the duals, there's no copay or very limited, you know, depending on the state, the state uh, Medicaid. Can you say state? Medicaid program, there's 50 different state Medicaid <laughs> programs. So exactly. that could be confusing, especially if you service multiple states. Yeah, because yeah. so probably yeah. 50 different set of rules. Because yeah. <laughs> oh, there's no probably about it. And, <laughs> right. and then you've got Puerto Rico, for example, the, 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 the Puerto Rico and Guam are going to have different yeah. rules. Really. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So how, you know, a big trend that we hear about everywhere we go now is, is the concept of long-term care at home. And obviously COVID had a huge impact on that as we saw you know, folks hesitant to go into a long-term care facilities or coming from long-term care facilities back to the home. Right. What do you see happening in that space? A lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> next question, no. Uh, yeah, right. exactly. I, I guess I would say a couple of things initially. The first and most important 
of which is that long-term care at home is far from new. Yeah. Uh, you know, consumer preference overwhelmingly is to stay at home, and it has been forever. Um, so if you are able to pay for services yourself, you're not going anywhere. Yeah. At a certain point, you may go into assisted living if you have private resources, and that kind of is driven in part, in, in significant part, um, by what sort of informal caregiving network you have. So at what point, for example, does your spouse break down and no longer, you know, Can't in a position to provide care? Yeah. Or does your family support or community support no longer? Because interestingly, uh, from some data analysis we've done, there does seem to, there do seem to be two factors that, that play into that decision mm -hmm. on an individual basis. One is the degree to which you suffer impairments in activities of daily living. And activities of daily living, although I'm sure most of the people who are listening to this know, those are things like your ability to get out of bed in the morning, to transfer from, uh, you know, from, uh, from a standing position to sitting or vice versa, more likely getting up, uh, going to the bathroom by yourself, feeding yourself, stuff like that. Uh, and and uh, at, generally, there are six ADLs that are generally accepted. Right. There are others and people have different definitions, but those six are, are typically what government uses to determine whether or not somebody uh, needs long term care. And the break point seems to be somewhere between four and five ADLs is the point at which whatever informal social support system you have breaks down and you need to be in a facility, whether that's an assisted living facility or a nursing facility. The other really interesting factor is, and it's probably the surprising, is cognitive impairment. Right. Um, the long term care population, let's just look at people who are on Medicare that need long term care. And there are about a little over four million people who fit that category. Seventy five percent of them are living at home right now. Which yeah. is incredible. I would right. never guess that. I would never guess that. And and about thirty nine percent of that population has. I think it's it's in the 30s. Don't quote me. Maybe 35, but you know, 35, 39 percent has some form of cognitive impairment. Okay, but in a facility, it's 59 percent. Okay, and so and that's both assisted living and skilled nursing. So at some point, the combination of cognitive impairment and physical impairment is defined by ADLs four or more is what forces people into facilities. And for those that are sort of aging at home or at home with, with one or more of the ADLs, what percent, do you have a sense of how many are being cared by a family member or somebody close to them versus home health or some other sort of health sure. professional that can send? I don't have, I don't have solid numbers. Okay. Mm -hmm. I have some, 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 there's some data you can rely on, but my answer to that question is all of them. I mean, <laughs> right, right. seriously, right. you know, think about your own personal experience. Yeah whether it's your family members or friends or acquaintances, you know, almost everybody has some story in America, has some story these days about someone they know who needed long-term care for a parent or their own, you know, and, and there's always an informal caregiving network. It may not be as obvious as one might think. Yeah. Um, certainly people who have more resources can pay for more services. Uh, but again, I do want to talk a little bit about home health because Home health is um, both a, a federally defined benefit, right? There's a Medicare home health benefit, which is very limited. You need a certain degree of, you need certain kinds of healthcare services and you have to be homebound. 
Okay. Right. Then there's then there's right. so you you have to be at a physical point where you actually can't theoretically except you can go to medical appointments. Okay. That's right. Right. Medical. right. Yeah. So, yeah. There's certain limitations on what on, uh, you know. So it's a limited benefit, right? Yeah. And then there's home. There's a home benefit, at home benefit that Medicaid provides, but of course you have to be low income for that. And then there's kind of home care, which you know maybe private insurance covers. Maybe individuals are paying out of pocket. So it's a real, this is the problem with the long-term care system is that it's not a system. It's not an integrated delivery system of any kind. It doesn't crosswalk between long-term care needs, which are defined by impairments in daily living activities and healthcare needs. And yet the people who need long-term care are disproportionately, disproportionately suffer from multiple chronic conditions. And as I mentioned earlier, cognitive impairments. Right. right. How does it work if the individual as lower income Medicaid, I as a family member can take care of them, but I am not in that category. How, how does the reimbursement or is there a reimbursement that manages that? Um, maybe. maybe, the answer is maybe. The, the reimbursement will come through the Medicaid benefit if your family member or loved one is, uh, is Medicaid eligible. And again, then it turns on what does the state do? Right. These days, most states offer alternatives to so-called institutional care that is alternatives to nursing home care. Um, generally, these come under the, there are two kind of ways that a state can go about doing this. They can offer what are known as home and community-based services, which are a variety, it's a grab bag. The state gets to pick what services they include, but federal law kind of sets the parameters on what sorts of services can be included, right? And sometimes in some states, some of the things that they can do are uh, to do something called money follows the person so that the beneficiary can use the money, for example, to pay a family member okay. to be an informal caregiver. But that is gonna turn on state law. And the other, the other thing worth knowing about home and community-based services is that they, they, they are not mandatory Medicaid services. And the reason that's important is that if a service is mandatory, at least legally, it doesn't always work out that way, but legally, the state has to provide it to anybody who's eligible. So nursing home care, nursing facility care is a mandatory benefit. If I'm a state and I wanna participate in, a Medicare, in the Medicaid program and get federal matching funds, I have to make sure that everybody in the state that needs long-term care who qualifies for Medicaid has access to a nursing home. Now that doesn't actually play out in practice, but that's the legal requirement. So, if however, I, let me finish yeah, the thought. Okay, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. then, Francis, please jump in. But, uh, however, home and community-based services are not mandatory; they are discretionary, which allows the state governments to limit the number of slots available. Yeah. And there is a, a substantial waiting list in just about every state for people who need long-term care don't want to go into a nursing home whether or not the service is available and who therefore are on waiting lists to get community-based services. You went exactly where my brain was going. Anyway, sure, what I was going to ask is, is <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing to me is that the point you made leaving, I mean, 75%, is that right? 70, above 70% of people eligible for long-term care are at home. Well, of Medicare, of Medicare, Medicare. beneficiaries who need long-term care, okay. there's a little over 3 million. Okay. So my thought process was, is it physically possible for every person who would be eligible under those rules for long-term care to actually receive the care, even though they're required to provide and pay for it? My thought is just like beds. There aren't physically enough beds. In nursing homes, there, aren't enough, there isn't enough nursing home capacity right. in the country. But 
for those folks to be in nursing homes now. Right. And so, and yet we're limiting right, right now by policy sort of the capacity to provide it at home for those that can't. Right. There, there are certain policy limits and, and practical limits uh, to providing the care at home. The policy limits largely go under the, the, the term that, that, you know, patient advocates in particular, but it's yeah. not common in policymaking circles is institutional bias. But yeah. what that really means is exactly what I just said. It, it states have to provide nursing home care to everybody that's eligible Medicaid. Yeah. They don't have to provide home community-based services. And there's a limitation actually on adding nursing home beds. You can't do that? Well, it depends on the state. Okay. Okay. Um, there, are two, there are two kind of limitations that could be present. One is some states um, limit the number of new beds that can be built um, in various ways. Or, you know, it's, but that's a condition of state law. It's not a matter of federal law or federal policy. Um, the other thing is that, of course, it's not necessarily affordable to build new nursing facilities because, you know, the men, putting aside the pandemic extra yeah. dollars, right? right. Um, nursing facilities generally have had to rely on fairly robust Medicare margins to cross-subsidize the inadequacy of Medicaid payments. And therefore, it's, it's kind of hard to sometimes, depending on the state in particular, to see the market, to make the market case for building new facilities. And when you have seen new facilities being built, generally, they're designed to have a higher percentage of short-stay Medicare Part A and Part C patients, and less, yeah, and and you know, and, and now CMS has adjusted its payment model right. to try, you know, to try to minimize the provision of therapy services. Um, this is a little bit of an aside, but you know, they they made a change in the payment, significant change in the payment system as of October first, two thousand and nineteen, for the federal fiscal year twenty twenty. If three to four months to kind of get that rolling, and then the pandemic hit. Right. So now CMS is proposing for uh, the payment for an adjustment to the payment model effective um, October 1 of this year for fiscal 2023 that would basically make basically cut payments by get my math right. Four point six percent because the transition from the old system, which is known as RUGS, research utilization groups, uh, to uh, the uh, what's it called? Patient. PDPM, well, the PDPM system, the new system, right? Which was designed to redirect funds away from therapy and towards non-therapy ancillaries, which by the way, include pharmacy. Uh, you know, that was supposed to be budget neutral. In other words, the federal government did not intend to spend more or less than it would have spent if it had kept the old system in place, right? Mm -hmm. And what they found is that they, they've spent $1.7 billion more than, than what they project they would have spent. And this, is, this has been an issue for the last year or so. Uh, CMS has been trying to figure out how much of this is due to the pandemic and therefore not the facility's fault as opposed to, although they don't say it this way, I think they think that facilities are manipulating the payment system to maximize reimbursement. No. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let, 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 let me talk about that for a and second. Too, and I would say, I'd be almost certain they are. And I don't know that yeah. that's... A, Terrible thing, terrible. right? That's, that's exactly. like they're following the incentive. Exactly. Because they struggle financially. Yeah, you know, and this it, it, it amazes me how how consistently the government doesn't recognize that by changing payment models, they're creating financial incentives. And then and then when people respond to the financial incentives, they consider abuse. Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. right. Anyways, but that's what's going on, right? So 
So, um, you know, that's an issue because they're proposing this cutback. Uh, and given the ongoing impact of COVID, which still, as you know, the sector hasn't recovered yet, or, yeah. uh, and the impact of inflation and the impact of workforce shortages, yeah. um, which is which are, you know, a, a, a tremendous problem and are going to be a continuing tremendous problem for long-term care. Um, I'm concerned about the economics of that, you know. So we've talked a lot about sort of current state mm -hmm. and some of the trends. would love to hear some of the things y'all are working on um, from a policy perspective. Right. Well, let's stay on this, the theme of long-term care at home because yeah. we started that. Yeah. We, uh, yeah. we deviated a little bit, uh, but now I'm going to bring it back. back to, yeah. yeah. So so the the issue for long-term care pharmacies is that, that it is difficult to uh, obtain adequate payment for long-term care pharmacy services outside of nursing facilities. For a variety of reasons under Medicare Part D policy, um, long-term care pharmacies are paid higher dispensing fees uh, for patients who are in nursing homes than they are for patients that they serve elsewhere. And in assisted living, those Medicare Part D standards don't really apply, so it's kind of a food fight, right? It depends on the contract, and some contracts pay enhanced dispensing fees, but not as high as the fees yeah. you get in, in skilled nursing facilities, and some essentially pay retail fees. Mm -hmm. And I would say the trend is to move toward retail, <laughs> retail dispensing fees, right? And so when you look at the at-home market, you're really talking about um, a fight over retail versus some other dispensing fee. Okay, and so a lot of the policy that, that you know, a lot of the policies that would be helpful would be how do you equalize the payment? How do you do two things? One, equalize the payment paying pay field, and then even beyond that, how do you recognize and get paid for the value of the clinical services yeah. that pharmacies provide? Because the Part D program does not pay for clinical services. We in the sector generally assume that the enhanced dispensing fee is designed to take those into account. From the CMS point of view, they aren't designed to take those into account. Yeah. They're designed to take, take into account a limited number of services, quote, specialized services that long-term care pharmacies provide that have nothing to do with clinical services, making emergency kits available at facilities, right. packaging, you know, all the packaging yeah, pharmacies, the delivery requirements, all that sort of stuff, right? Which, so one of the interesting things I was thinking about, because I, I wrote those down when you were talking earlier, was if it's true long-term care to the home, what you've really done is take one facility and make it 100 facilities. And right. if you're still doing the compliance packaging, you're still doing the delivery, it's actually um, a more complex process. And yet the reimbursement right now, the way the environment is structured is that the reimbursement is less. Right. You and that's much, purely for the med piece, right? Yeah. yeah. You pretty much figure it's a retail dispensing rate. Yeah. If you're talking about Part D. But this is where some interesting opportunities exist in the marketplace because Part D is, yes, Part D may be paying for the drugs, but to the extent the services that a long-term care pharmacy provides can improve outcomes for people in ways that reduce health, reduce healthcare spending, then there's a different basis to make your case that you ought to get paid more and for the clinical services, and you're looking at a different payer. Example, um, uh, Let's posit a long-term care pharmacy in a community that has a dominant healthcare um, system, okay. right? And that healthcare system not only is providing healthcare to groups of people, but it's taking on some financial risk. 
uh, either financial risk in a relationship to a payer, say an insurance company, or they're also managing an insurance benefit themselves. Sure. Okay. And so now they have an incentive to keep the costs of care low beyond what they're spending for drugs. Okay. And if you look at the patients who are going to be the most expensive, who are they going to be? They're going to be people who have chronic care needs and who have long-term care needs. There's a, there's kind of a, it's, it's sort of like Venn diagrams when you were in, in yeah, high school, exactly, right? Exactly. You know, there, there, there are these two circles. And in the middle, you've got these patients who have long-term care needs and chronic care needs and some form of cognitive impairment, right? And if you can save money on what you're spending to pay for the healthcare of that group, that's where, that's where so long -term, if long-term care pharmacies can show that the clinical services that they provide, the medication management, the interventions, and it, it's pretty clear that, you know, based on what literature is available, if you think about the services that a pharmacy can provide that make a difference, right. you know, that improve adherence, and by adherence, I don't mean is your prescription being refilled? I mean, are you really taking the drug, right? You're taking the right drug at the right time and the right yeah. dose and not taking the meds from the other 20 pill bottles that you've accumulated that you no longer, that you no longer should take. Cutting them out in half. Like right, exactly. You know, yeah, right. And so, you know, what can you do? What, what, what matters? Well, it seems that what matters are, you know, specialized packaging that helps in adherence, you know, but that's not unique to long-term care pharmacies, right? Pill pack right. that. Right, right, exactly. But what, what, what else? Synchronizing the script so that they're all getting refilled at the same time. Um, again, something that a pill pack could do if they, you know, but there is some benefit to having a pharmacist actually say, wait a minute, you know, this is the thing, right? Um, there's some evidence that, and we're actually, SCPC is actually thinking about a research project in this regard, but um, there's some evidence that because long-term care pharmacists are familiar with the beers criteria mm -hmm. and routinely apply that in ways that retail pharmacies don't, that there may be, you know, that may, that there, there may be some difference in outcomes there, which of course translate into higher healthcare costs. Uh, and then some intervention, some intervention that is meaningful to the patient between, between refills. Mm -hmm. So at some point, you know, weekly or whatever, some sort of check-in to make sure that people are appropriately taking their meds. Right. Consulting. Right. Yeah. yeah, those matter. Those are the things that matter. Yeah. Uh, and um, to the extent that you can make that case to one of, to a payer, this, health, this hypothetical health system, um, then maybe you can negotiate and say, you know, we're going to save you $2,000 a year per, per patient in your, say, network of patients. Pay us $30 a month for these services. Right. That kind of thing. And then you can think about, well, what criteria qualify people to be eligible for this, this service? And, you know, there are various criteria you can use uh, based on clinical needs and um, right. levels of impairment, number of meds taken per month, that kind of thing. Um, that's where I see a lot of opportunity. And that opportunity extends in the market to, you know, MAPDP plans that, that are responsible for both the healthcare and the drug spend. There may be opportunities to work with home health agencies or home care agencies to help manage their populations uh, in ways that reduce their spending or reduce their costs or reduce the penalties that they have to pay in risk arrangements. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it becomes a little bit like the Wild West, right? Because Unlike, you know, it's not like, here's the payer. It's not like the old days, right? Where you had the medic, you had Medicare and the Medicare intermediary 
and Medicare intermediary was simply administering rules that the federal government put in place, and you pretty much knew what you were going to get paid, yeah, exactly, right? right, and how you were going to get paid. Which, by the way, ought to be really relevant to what Red Sail does and what Integra does, because data is king, right? You have to be able to prove that you, if you're the pharmacy, right, you're trying to negotiate these kinds of deals, you have to bring data to the table and make your case. You have to prove that your services deliver this value and deliver it in ways that matter to whoever you're negotiating with. They're not going to prove it for you, and they're not going to believe you simply because you're good people and you know, <laughs> and you, you 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 sound convincing. Right. Right. Show me the money again. Exactly. Yep. Follow the money. And so the degree to which a pharmacy or group of pharmacies or somebody negotiating on behalf of a group of pharmacies has credible data. Yeah. that establishes and you know goes a long way to proving what they're claiming that's where you're going to you're going to yeah. be able to negotiate this stuff it's it's interesting so the last podcast we just did jim wasn't on this one we did it with evelyn at it. we were talking about six sigma lean six sigma and there's a saying where we say it's like what gets measured gets done exactly. and this is kind of the core of, you know it's like right. what gets measured gets paid yeah yeah but that's really that's really that's really, really, really so that to me is a real that's a real opportunity now there are certain ways that public policy might change that could be helpful yeah but from i think it is politically unrealistic to think you're going to change the provision in the Medicare statute, which says to CMS, stay out of contracts, which says to CMS, you, you, CMS, can't get in the way of any contract negotiations between the plan, which means the PBM, and the manufacturer on the one hand, or the pharmacy on the other. How did that start? Where did that rule come from? Do you have any? Yeah, I know exactly (laughs) where it came it's it's a really interesting political kind of thing, and I don't want to offend any of your of your listeners or either of you. But essentially, you will recall that Part D is a Republican construction, okay. right? Yeah. Um, the Bush administration, the W, right, 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 right. W, that his administration came up with this idea. Right. At the time, the Republicans controlled both chambers of Congress. And so it was very important to them that the Part D program be a quote-unquote free market program. Now, a little editorial comment from somebody who grew up in Massachusetts. How exactly does government paying, you know, $50 billion a year for prescription drugs not involve the government? I'm not sure I understand that. But in any event, so, so, you know, and really the, the truth is that in order to um, get both um, – primarily to get the manufacturers, drug manufacturers, supportive of a prescription drug benefit, uh, the Republicans agreed that they would not let the federal government negotiate drug prices. And that's what the non-interference clause originally was about. Now, the other interesting thing here is that, of course, you had the insurance companies that would benefit because they would be the offering of Part D plans. But think about what a PBM looked like in 2001, 2002. They were basically administrative services organizations that were tiny, right? But Part D and the ability, the inability of the federal government to limit what Part D plans could do caused the PBM problem that we have today because it empowered them in ways that allowed them to control formularies without without any real, there's some minor constraints, but without any significant constraints. 
which meant that, that they could negotiate huge rebates from manufacturers, yeah. right? It meant that they, can, they could structure the pharmacies that get into Part D networks and exclude, not so much in the long-term care space, but in the retail space, exclude pharmacies from the, from the network, okay? Which means that they could extract enormous fees from pharmacies, right? right? And admittedly, some of that, all of that needs to get passed on, most of it needs to get passed on to the, to the plans that they contract with. But you are well aware of the degree to which both first the PBM market consolidated, mm -hmm. and then the PBM market essentially got acquired by insurance companies, Correct. which now have become not only insurance companies, but the largest pharmacy providers right. and healthcare providers in their own right, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Which is a hard battle to fight. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Which, by the way, is the other interesting thing that's happening on the public policy. Yes. Yeah. Because um, over the last, you know, since, since um, over the last four years, since the Democrats regained control of the House and then regained control of the Senate and now have a Democratic president, much of the debate around, um, you know, the, the pharmacy supply, drug supply chain and all that has turned on price negotiation. So it's basically the Democrats wanting to create the opportunity for Medicare to negotiate directly with manufacturers, which would, of course, you know, starve the PBMs, mm -hmm. et cetera. But, but in order to do that, really what you need to do is you need to change the non-interference clause, right. which is a third rail politically for Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's what the, that's when you get to what, what would change statutorily, that's it. Yeah. Now, if the Democrats no longer control the House or both the House and the Senate next year, the discussion is likely to flip from drug pricing and negotiation to drug pricing and PBMs. Right. Yeah, sure. and, and, and this will come on top of a change in the thinking, the, the thinking of the administration around antitrust law, right? Um, Starting, this to me is, I'm sorry, this is maybe a little pedantic, but starting with the Reagan administration and continuing uninterruptedly through both Democratic and Republican administrations, the focus of how government interpreted and enforced the antitrust laws changed. It used to be that, that a couple of things matter, price, quality, and access. Consumer, the prices consumer pay, consumers paid their, the quality of the services that they got and their access to those services, right? Over time, this theory evolved that the only thing that mattered was price. So whatever business transactions, whatever business practices were out there, if they lowered price, nothing else mattered. Yeah. It's why a lot of the market consolidation we've seen, not just in healthcare and not just in drugs or pharmacy or you know CVS and Optum and so on, yeah. But overall, yes. now Lena Khan, who is the current chair of the FTC, she's only, she's like, I don't think she's 35. And in law school, she became an, an, an you know, an ex, a nationally recognized expert on antitrust law by pushing back on this theory, particularly in the context of Amazon, but beyond yeah, right, tech. Right. But, but, you know, her view and a view that is prevalent now in the Biden administration is that we need a little bit more balance. We need to return to quality. We need to return to access. And we need not just to think about is the price, you know, yeah. how, is the price as low as it possibly could be, and for how long, yeah. right? So, and and, and, the, and yeah. just to finish the thought, the reason that that's important is that it is changing the thinking on the FTC's part and the antitrust division part around PBMs. Yeah. And just you know, just recently um, in uh, early June, 
the FTC voted unanimously to conduct an investigation of the six largest PBMs. So I think we're going to see a lot of pressure on PBMs. I think that's very relevant to all pharmacies, including long-term care yeah. pharmacies. I mean, one of the things I've seen, I'm curious your perspective on this, sure. you're closer than I am, is that one of the other lens that creates complexity in healthcare is that it's very focused on sort of immediate competitors versus the entire system. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at particular competitors, it's just what's the price to their nearest one. So in healthcare, we have different organizations paying than are providing the service. Uh, you know, are different than who's getting the service or providing the service, right? It's a very complex system. And that as we've looked at kind of consolidation, whether it's United and Optum or CVS and CVS Caremark and Aetna, that type of vertical integration creates a really complex market um, that's hard to kind of put in really strict, simple FTC rules. And so are you seeing kind of the, the lens change in terms of looking at the complexity a little bit more or... Is it still fairly, you know, healthcare is an odd duck. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a really good question. And, and yes, I do see the FTC thinking more broadly mm-hmm. um, in terms of the conglomerates yeah. that PBMs are a part of. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, my analogy is that the PBMs are the spider in the center of the web. And the web includes the insurance yeah. component. It includes the pharmacy component and really the most important aspect of that is specialty pharmacy, which I'm happy to talk about uh, separately. Uh, It includes primary care. So the idea is, you know, you you have your, you're one of these conglomerates, right? And you offer health insurance and you offer drug coverage and you're in the the Medicare market and you're in the commercial market and maybe you're in the Medicaid managed care market, right? And you also provide primary care in one form or another, um, and you co-locate, say, minute clinics with pharmacies, right? You put them in a retail pharmacy, you put them in a Kroger's, you know, or or Walmart. And um, so the patient comes in, goes to the doctor, gets the med. They're already standing in the pharmacy, so where they're going to fill the prescription, right? Um, And then the prescription kind of gets, you know, so that you capture all of that. And by the way, you might as well sign up for our insurance. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's from a business perspective, it's, it's a, 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 you know, what, who wouldn't, right? The question becomes, to what degree are those practices anti-competitive in ways that hurt competition and that, that hurt consumers either because, it means they pay higher prices than other us would pay, or they have inferior quality, yeah. or they have limited access. And in our space, there are arguments that all of those are true, that because of these conglomerations, consumers pay more than they otherwise would. Um, competitors, competition is impacted adversely. And um, as a result, you know, consumers not only pay higher prices, but they have limit, more limited access than they would otherwise have to, to drugs that they need. And um, they're the qual- and therefore the quality of the care that they receive is less, right? Uh, now, the question to me is whether the FTC will really be able to keep up with the rapidity with which these companies change their business practices. Yeah. You may recall a few years ago that, um, you know, it, it took a while, but the retail pharmacies got government up in arms over gag clauses, yeah. right? These provisions that said, 
you, the pharmacy, can't tell people that if they pay out of the pocket, it will cost them less than if they right. use their insurance, right. right? And so several years later, Congress passes a law saying gag clauses can't be used, you know, in Part D. Fine. The plans were way ahead of them. They changed that provision. Yeah. They, they, saw, they saw the handwriting on the wall. I think they see the handwriting on the wall on, the, on this PBM stuff. And my example of that is, is that I did not know this until a couple months ago, that these, these conglomerates have now created so-called group purchasing organizations for PBMs, right? PBM GPOs. And the idea behind these is that by rolling up uh, a number of PBMs into one negotiating entity, you get better deals. You get better deals with manufacturers, you get better deals Fine. Uh, but it's interesting to note that each of the major three players, CVS, um, United, and Cigna, have created these GPOs. Two of them are offshore, yeah. which means they're less subject to federal regulations. All three of them create a layer of opacity that makes it harder to understand what's really going on. Mm -hmm. In one case, they do, in fact, you know, in, in, um, in, in one case, in the, in the United case, the only member of this GPO holding company is Optum. So they can't, so they're not really, you know, aggregating more market share. So why do you need this company that's based outside of the United States, right? In other cases, there may be more than one member, right? But it tends to be uh, PBMs who either directly or through their insurance companies have shared relationships, right? Um, and so, uh, so, you know, again, it seems like the real reason for these things is to protect themselves from federal United States government oversight. Yeah. Right. So can the FTC catch up to that and kind of be ahead of that? And we'll see, we'll see how this, uh, if there's a, switch, if there's a switch to challenge the PBM, can they do that when they spread themselves out so far and to other countries? Is that oh, you mean can the, can the FTC? Yeah, do, yeah the, the FTC yeah. has various enforcement powers, and okay. they could they could they could do a lot. Okay. Whether they do it or not remains to be seen, and whether they win remains to be seen. I mean, theoretically, they could say to CVS, just as an example, okay, you you got to divest yourselves of all of the pharmacies you own. Uh, Get rid of your specialty pharmacy, hmm. right? You're either in the insurance business or you're in the pharmacy business, you're not in both. Yep. And you can imagine what the, I mean, I would want to be the lawyer on that because I'd make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, that would be, that would be, uh, there would be huge multi-year litigation, right. all that sort yeah. of stuff. And we'll see whether the FTC is willing to, to take that on. You know, um, similarly, it will be interesting to see if the Republicans win the House, say, uh, and they start to investigate PBMs, what they are willing to do, because they're still going to want to operate under this kind of free market rubric. Right. And um, which is, again, to me, why I think on this point, the more that we or anybody that's interested in seeing this, uh, seeing some of these abuses reined in, the more we can talk antitrust language as opposed to part D language, the better off we are. Right. So it's a great uh Great segue. So one of the things we love to do towards the end of all of our podcasts is ask our guests sort of what's the X factor. So we have long-term care pharmacies listening today. What's the one thing they should go do differently or think about differently or go take action on based on the things we've talked about today? We've talked about a lot from long-term care to the home mm -hmm. to transitions with PBMs. What's one thing you'd say, hey, go do this? Prove it. Prove it. Get the data. Right. Prove it. And and um, let me qualify that. Yeah. 
prove it to the satisfaction of the audience you want to persuade. I mean, every long-term care pharmacy you talk to will tell you that they change outcomes. Okay, what outcomes have you changed? Show me the outcomes that you've changed. And show me the outcomes that, and and don't show me, don't show Alan Rosenblum. I appreciate it if you would, be helpful, but, but show it to a PBM. Show it to a Medicare Advantage PDPM. Show it to a healthcare system. If you can do that, then then you're you're, you're going to be in a much better position. Show show it show the FTC how PBMs are abusive. Right. You know, give them concrete examples. Well, thanks for your time. Super interesting discussion. Really appreciate the time. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for being at our conference. Yep. Um, Truly, my pleasure. I will say that you know, um, Integra and Red Sail have been you know wonderful partners for SCPC, and so it is more than my pleasure to, to join you today. And if if folks want to go find SCPC, where should they go look? To find We're on us? the web. We're on the web. Perfect. Senior Care Farmers Coalition. Uh, or more. Excellent. Well, go check them out. And thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Ellen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Integra X-Files. We'd like to hear from you and gain your perspective on the X-Factor and improving long-term care pharmacy. Connect with us at IntegraXFiles.com. That's IntegraXFiles.com.